Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 30 today. 31 will be tacked on to next week. Uh, it's 31 and 32 I want, to, I want to handle together. I'm going to encourage you to read with your eyes, not just your ears, as I'm going to go through this a little bit quickly because I want to read the whole chapter as I suspect the Lord will speak to us through it all. This is God's Word. It was written a long time ago, but when he wrote it, because he's outside of time, he wrote it with you in mind, as well as other people. Hear God speak. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone, his envoys reach Hannah's, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit but shame and disgrace, an oracle on the beasts of the Negeb, through a land of trouble and anguish from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now, go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel." Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found to which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling And you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till 
you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. And therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols uh, overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You'll say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow in the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire." His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction, to place on the jaws of a people's a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song, as in the night when a holy feast is kept in gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel." The Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloud burst and a storm of hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres, Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is useful. It teaches us who you are and how we are to live And we thank you that it is useful even when we don't understand it at first. And so we pray that you would give us understanding and faith. For Christ's sake, amen. What makes the Bible a lovely book? 
It's a question that sometimes you probably don't sit down and think about that often, uh, particularly if you've grown up in the church, if you're one of those blessed like I've been, where you've you spent your whole life in the church and never been apart from it. Sometimes we can kind of take this book for granted, can't we? I mean, we kind of know in the back of our minds that it's true because God wrote it, but we forget the, the beauty and the majesty and the grandeur of it. We forget its size printed on the wall behind me. We forget how even with all of those various books, it's one book with really one ultimate author, though written by a multitude of faithful men. It tells one story from start to finish. There's so many beautiful and lovely things about the Bible. But one of those things that I I think I I particularly enjoy, and I've enjoyed the last handful of years, uh, more so even, I guess, than my younger years, has been the way in which the Bible speaks to our current events. How our God, because he is outside of time and outside of space, right? When, when we write letters, we write cause and effect. It's written inside time. I, I pick this moment in time, I write my letter, and it's kind of read into the future. Well, God is outside of time, and so when he's addressing time, he's addressing it from outside. So he sees the end and the beginning and everything in between all at the same moment. So when he writes his Bible, it's writing about the present time always, because he's outside of time and space. He's not trapped in size, cause, and effect. He is the cause, everything else the effect. This chapter, one of those chapters that is wonderfully written about a very specific time and space, written about a very specific kind of period in history speaking to that contemporary time in such a way that it teaches us who God is and how we are to live. I I love that this chapter is one of those chapters that helps us kind of answer the question, what does it all mean? Do you ever have that moment when you're looking around at your life and you're like, what does it all mean? Why am I doing this? Like, what is happening? What What is going on in my life? What is happening? I found myself asking that probably every exam period in college. Like, what have I done? What decisions have I made to get myself to this place? What does it all mean? Or when you're standing in line at the DMV for what feels like three weeks at a time, what have I done to get to this point in my life? Isaiah 30, we're going to look at, there's going to be kind of four things uh, dealing with kind of very specific events that hopefully we're going to get to see should help you think about your specific events today, right? Four events then that are going to teach us something very specific that's going to help us with our events today. Now, where we are in the book, this is in Isaiah's cycle of woes. This is all the bad news. Whoa, it's bad. Uh, There's sin in the camp. Israel is a sinful nation, and as a result, judgment is coming. It's the hard chapters, not the chapters that we probably tend to read for our devotions the most uh, because we don't tend to enjoy them the most perhaps, but it is that. 29, the previous chapter, is one that kind of lays out so aggressively that um, because Israel has so dishonored the Lord, judgment is coming to uh, the nation and the nation's going to be wiped off the map. The Lord's going to use uh, Assyria. He's going to destroy his nation. That's going to be their punishment for their sin, for their uh, dishonoring the Lord, not walking in his ways, not knowing him and not loving him. Uh, There will be a remnant preserved, but it's uh, all for their sin. They're not knowing the Lord. They're, They're dishonoring him. 
This takes us to chapter 30, though, where it actually kind of takes a little bit of a hard turn where we go into a bit more uh, hopeful of language. Four movements in the text. The first is verses 1 through 7. And verses 1 through 7 address a very specific situation in history. What's happening at this point is, and I'll see if I can get my map backwards for you correctly, uh, right? In Mediterranean Sea, you have Israel right here. Uh, they're having problems with this neighbor right here. The Assyrian nation is preparing to invade Israel. It's a massive problem because Assyria at this point is uh, notoriously powerful as a nation. Their military at this point was unrivaled, and they were known for being what we might say is not very nice. Uh, even when they invaded you, they, they weren't the kind of overlords that you were excited about hap- having. Uh, they were the ones that were just ruthlessly brutal to you and to your children, uh, to your wives and to your families. They, they were very, very horrible in what they did. The way they treated uh, a nation that was conquered and the way they would destroy them was just absolutely wretched. Uh, if you lived, uh, many cases you wish you hadn't. They were awful nation. And so what Israel was doing is, in an effort to get away from Assyria, they had made an alliance down here with Egypt, uh, the great enemy of Israel, uh, their arch nemesis, so to speak. And you know it's bad uh, when you're making a a deal with the devil, so to speak, and that's what they're doing. It it would have been kind of by modern standards and maybe for our ears thinking about if if in 1941 or 42 or 43, if the, the Jews had made an alliance with the Nazis against the Russians. You're like, this is insane. The Jews and the Nazis on the same team? What's happening? And that's functionally what's happened is Israel's king is negotiating a deal with Egypt to kind of say, we need protection from Assyria. This northern nation, this uh, nation to our uh, west is, or east, sorry, is uh, coming to get us and we need support. We need security. We need a military. We need strength. We need power. We need protection. And we can't provide it. Our army's not big enough, our military is not advanced enough, we don't have all of the latest, you know, military technology. We need somebody that's stronger. And so you know what we're going to do is we're going to reach out to Egypt and they're going to be our saviors. They're going to be the ones that come and help us. The problem is, as with all deals with the devil, they don't really pan out the way you expect them to, do they? That's why it's called a deal with the devil. <laughs> it's not a good deal. It's not a good business deal. This isn't the you know, investment of a lifetime. You're like, wow, that paid out huge. I didn't know that if I bought you know, Google stock 30 years ago, I'd be doing pretty well right now. And no, it's not that kind of deal. What's happened is Egypt, is, their help has not materialized. And in fact, Assyria's invasion is getting ready to materialize. But the Lord goes to speak about that in verses one through seven. In fact, actually gives them a very, very clear object lesson about this. You stubborn children. And those are the words that I don't really enjoy hearing from my Lord, right? This is not the kind of address I'd like to get. I like, well done, good and faithful servant. I like, you know, you you faithful child of mine, uh, child that I love. You stubborn children. What's the problem? Verse one, you children who are carrying out a plan, but it's not my plan. You're making alliances to protect yourself, but they're not my alliances. You're doing the things that you think you need to do to be safe. The problem is, they're not the things I've told you to do. You're making an alliance with Egypt. Verse two, you've gone down there without asking for my direction, and in fact, you're actually seeking protection in the shadow of Pharaoh himself. 
Now remember, I mean, the the second book of the Bible is by and large about God showing his dominance over Pharaoh and showing his dominance over the gods of Egypt. That's Exodus, the whole point of the book. Our God is greater than that entire nation and anything associated with it. He's the mighty God, the all-powerful God. And here what's happening is his people, rather than going to him, the mighty God, the all-powerful God, the God who has already conquered Egypt, they're going down to a lesser helper. They're going down to a conquered enemy to see if that conquered enemy can be their safety and to be their strength. The problem is, verse 7 highlights it at the very end, Egypt's health is worthless. It's empty. And the, the reason why Egypt's health help is worthless and empty is, is not because Egypt was a bad nation at this time. In fact, actually, they were still pretty powerful, uh, not as powerful as they were uh, during the Exodus, but pretty powerful. Probably not powerful enough to beat Assyria, but that's okay. It still was, you know, a, a, a clever gamble. The problem is that Israel has actively turned away from the protection of their God. The Lord has already told them, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch out for you. Just love me and obey me. I will be your protector. You see, they're presented with kind of this contemporary crisis of we're about to be invaded by Assyria. We, we, we look like we're in danger on all sides. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. And the problem is the something they do isn't to go back to the Lord. It isn't to go sit at the feet of Jesus. It's not to kneel before the throne of grace. It's not to go uh, to the very altar before the Lord and plead his protection and grace. It's to go to the enemy, to the conquered, defeated foe. And I love how what we have here is this kind of moment in time of real history for them, a a people that are confronted with a national crisis of, oh no, we're going to be invaded, what am I called to do? Well, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love how that lesson actually teaches us so much about who God is. You see, that's the point that Israel's actually been missing. That's actually the big piece of the puzzle that they're, they're neglecting is that this teaches who God is and he's the God who loves to protect his people. He enjoys it. He delights in it. Maybe a, a kind of silly illustration of this would be, uh, you know, at Christmas time or birthdays, some of us, we really enjoy getting our children presents, don't we? Like when they're little and you get that, that perfect present that they get so excited that it like short circuits their brain. You ever seen a little kid get that moment? It's just the most fun where they're like so happy and, they just, and then half of them, they'll sit down and cry or they'll go take a nap or something because they, they're just, it's too much joy and it's like it fries their mind. They don't know what to do with it. As a parent, you love that moment where you're like, I just made my child so happy that they just kind of broke. And I like that because they're happy and that's exciting. And once they get themselves put back together, that thing's going to be a source of happiness for them for a long time. We love that. 
We forget that the Lord finds similar type of joy in protecting his people. Like sometimes I think we forget that. Why do we as human parents find delight in giving our kids presents like that? Luke 11 tells us, because parents here are derivative of the relationship that God has with his people. That joy that we find in in loving our children and taking care of them, that joy that we find in that smile that's so big it splits their head in half, that joy that we find, it's derivative because God is the one who invented that joy. He created it. He thought it up because that's his relationship with us. He gets excited about taking care of us. And I think many of us, honestly, we may believe this intellectually, but we certainly don't believe this in our hearts because it is reflected in our prayer life. That when we get into trouble, or we have a situation that seems too big for us or pain that is too overwhelming or, or problems that are just poof, too big, either we go try to negotiate some human solution Or even when we do sit down to pray about it, sometimes it's amazing how many times I talk with people and hear people that are embarrassed to have to ask God for protection. As if it's not his character to do so. (laughs) As, As if it doesn't delight him to do so. I mean, I again I I don't think I've ever talked to a parent that was like, you know what, man, I hate it. I just made my kid too happy. Right? I mean, their Christmas present, I think I did too good this year. Right? Their birthday, I just nailed every present and just upsets me that I made my kids so happy. I've never talked to that parent. Well, maybe there is some weirdo out there, I don't know, but I've never met them. In reality, is that's actually interesting how God interacts with his people. He delights in us coming to him to ask for help. He delights. In fact, that's the entire design of the Assyria invasion. That's what would have prevented the entire thing. If Israel as a nation had gone back to the Lord and thrown themselves at his feet and said, look, we need help, God. You are the God who saves, and we're the people that need saving. Granted, that's our fault. We're, we're the problem. But would you please save us? Help us. Show mercy to us. Show grace. Now, all of this is kind of, in the Old Testament, it's told with this kind of looking forward idea. And it's all told with this idea that God is the God who loves to help his people, but it's all told kind of future-oriented. Look, this is what he's going to do in some sense. Until you get to the New Testament, which it changes It's a bit of a he's already done some, but it's not yet finished kind of tone. Because all of those promises of like, look, the Lord loves to take care of his people. He loves to protect his people. How do we know that? Because he sent Jesus. That Jesus that we've already confessed in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus who is the only begotten Son of God, not uh, created, he is the eternal God. That Jesus who is... One of the persons of the triune God. Very God of very God, light, very light. That one is the one that he sent to the cross to protect us. So that it would be finished, so that we'd have proof, we'd have that tangible thing that we could look back on that 2,000 years ago, God accomplished my protection ultimately. He loves taking care of me. 
And why do I panic then? Why do I then try to take my problems and take them into my own hands? Why do I load up my shoulders with my problems so that my anxiety becomes crippling? So that my fear of what's out there, my fear of the world, my fear of getting hurt again, my fear of whatever it is, becomes the dominant thought in my mind. How differently would it be for you in your circumstances? Everybody in here has got something Right? It's the world we live in. Everybody's got something in here that's giving you a little bit of that kind of niggling stress in the back of your mind. And some of us in here actually have real dangers around us. How might it go differently if we were to just take it to the Lord and say, you've promised to protect your people. You've promised to protect Israel. You've promised to protect the remnant. And you're promising to protect me. I'm going to throw myself at your mercy. I'm going to sleep soundly. I'm going to hope constantly. I'm going to watch eagerly. And I'm going to thank continually. This is a very different way than many of us do, don't we? Where we kind of, again, load ourselves up and it just produces misery. Well, the issue with this is immediately, obviously, some of us are going to say, well, I'm just going to be, if I'm going to be candid, I worry that God's not going to do a very good job. I mean, I won't say that out loud, but that's really what I think in my head, isn't it? I can't trust him to protect me because he might be a little incompetent. At least he's not going to do it the way I want to do it. I mean, I'll do a better job. I mean, for protecting me, self-protection, I'm the best there is, Right? I mean, I don't have a very good track record, but maybe I'm the best. Well, interestingly, that's kind of the next idea that's dealt with in the text. Verses 8 through 17, he goes back and addresses Israel that was addressed in the previous chapter and explains to them what the problem is. Now go write it before them on a tablet and scribe in a book that it may be a witness forever. So go give them the word of God. Let them hear from heaven. Let them hear what God himself has said. The problem is verse 9 speaks to their spiritual condition. These are a people that know not the Lord. They are a rebellious people. They are a lying children, and they are unwilling to hear the word of God. They don't want to hear. They don't want to do it God's way because they don't want to hear what God has to say. And as a result... These prophets, these ones who are given the word of God that's supposed to carry it to the people, what are they saying to them? Verse 10, to those who are given the visions of God, they say, I don't want to see what you have to say. You need to go shut up. Don't talk. And you're not allowed to say that. That's what they're saying to them. Verse 10, the prophets, and this would be kind of think your, your preacher today, don't preach. Don't tell us what's right anymore. Only tell us things that makes us happy. Only that tell me the things that make me feel good about myself. Only boost my self-esteem. Only boost my ego. Only tell me things that make me feel good. Don't tell me the truth. You see, they're doing that same kind of thing of rather than trusting the Lord, rather than receiving his word, rather than obeying him, they're rejecting him. And the problem with that is that ultimately... Our God is a just God. 
Right? So first point you got to see is he loves to take care of his people. He loves to take care of his people. The second thing you get to see about him is that sin does not go unpunished. It will be dealt with. Now, interestingly here, the, the illustration, the primary illustration he uses at this point, it's not Assyria, that was verses one through seven. I mean, Egypt, that's one through seven. It's not Assyria, that's gonna be 27 through 33. Here it's Israel. It's even those that were calling themselves by his name, the Jews at that point. He's saying, look, even your sin has to be dealt with. Deep-seated rebellion has to be dealt with. And in fact, ultimate rebellion produces ruin. It gives a couple of just really interesting kind of word pictures. I love how if you paid attention, you could kind of see these in your brain probably. Verse 13, like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse. So like if, if you've seen a, like a, a high brick wall that wasn't built very well, and you can kind of see that moment where it kind of begins to buckle a little bit and then the whole thing just <laughs> falls. Maybe the one that you might have seen a bit more readily would be a kind of modern day version of this is if you watched any of the videos of like the flooding that's happened in you know, Katrina or anywhere in the Midwest over the last 25 years where the dam or the dike holds until it gets that tiny little trickle and once the tiny little trickle gets through the, the earthen dam, it's like, oh no, like this is bad. And then in a matter of just moments, the whole thing's just gone, you know, huge flood that happens. It's that idea that, that you can kind of see it coming, you can kind of see it coming, you can kind of see it coming, and then ruin is destroys them. In fact, actually, it's like a second part of verse 13, this, this justice comes, it's, it's like dropping a dish. Some of you have known to do that, right? You're unloading the dishwasher, the dish is a little bit still, uh, you know, slippery on your fingers, and you turn a little too quickly, and whoop, there goes the plate, or there goes the glass, there goes the cup. I can tell exactly who the people are who are struggling with that while I'm giving that illustration. That makes me laugh, because you've got a couple of people in the room that are like, oh yeah, I know that, and a couple of people that are looking down like, mm, that just made me laugh. I'm sorry, I got the giggles from that. Yeah, but you get that same moment where you drop it, and it hits, and just glass all over the floor, ceramics all over the floor, Right? And here it's actually a destruction that's so great that the fragments themselves aren't usable. It's broken into so much of a million pieces that verse 14, you can't even use the pieces for anything useful. All you can do is sweep it up and throw it in the trash. The Lord deals with sinners. He's a just God and he's going to destroy the wicked. Now, the application of this you know, for the Jews should have been in some sense comforting because he does not turn a blind eye to sin. Those that sin against me, the ones that I need protection from, the Lord's gonna deal with them. That's a really fun thought to think about. Who's not going to deal with them? Me. Those that are, are, are evil and those that are doing me wrong, those that are out to get you or doing you wrong, those that are your enemies, those that are persecuting you, whatever else it is, you don't deal with them. You don't have to because God loves to protect you. But even beyond that, is he is the God who deals with sin and he's just and he has a major love for protecting you. You think he's going to turn a blind eye when people do you wrong? I remember a number of years ago reading a, 
a story about a, it's an American pastor, I forget which, which uh, denomination or church he was from, and he was traveling in uh, a part of the world that was, we might say, a bit less safe. And uh, his uh, you know, convoy was captured by uh, guerrilla fighters, and you know, they come up with their machine guns and everything and have guns to their heads and everything, and at one point, they had a gun to his head. And the gentleman speaking with him said, are you afraid, sir? And he's like, oh, I'm terrified. And he's like, well, you should be. He's like, oh, no, you misunderstand. I'm not terrified for me. And the guy was like, I'm sorry, what now? And he's like, sir, I'm a pastor. What do you think is going to happen to you if you hurt me? What do you think God is going to do to you if you lay a hand on his pastor? I'm not worried for me, friend. I'm worried for you. The guy was like, yeah, that's a great point. I'm out. And they loaded up, they got in their car, and they drove off straight away, and they left them all alone. Now, of course, afterwards, they asked me, like, were you scared? He's like, I was scared senseless. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trusting the Lord, and the Lord used it to protect me. The Lord doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He's going to deal with it. He's going to punish it. That's actually why we have such good hope in Jesus Christ, that the, the punishment we deserve, that the wrong that we have done the sins that we've already confessed in our order of worship, those are paid for on the cross. Because if we're really going to be truly honest about ourselves here, we would have to say that in somebody else's story, we're the bad guys. I mean, that's part of the problem, isn't it? We always think that we're the hero in the story. We always think that it's our story where we're always the good guy. It's why when we read our fun little novels, we always associate with the good guys. But we forget that at some point in time, we were actually the villain in somebody else's story. We're the ones that need forgiveness. And we're not the heroes, actually. We're the problem. Why salvation is so wonderful. In fact, actually, that's really kind of where he goes next, if you look at the text. The third movement is verses 18 through 26, and I'm going to go through this one quickly. This is where the Lord kind of begins to address his people specifically as to what the hardship is designed for. Therefore, the Lord waits. He, he, he's not uh, fallen asleep. He's not patient. I mean, he's not impatient. He's not kind of zoned out like some of us are. Instead, he's patiently waiting. In fact, actually, he's patiently waiting to be gracious to you in the exact right moment in time so that he will exalt himself to show mercy to you. He is the Lord of justice. He is going to do it. He's going to take care of you. Now, the challenge, again, for many of us is we say, well, if, if the Lord takes care of his people, why is my life so hard right now? If, if he's promised to take care of me, he's either doing a terrible job or something else is happening that I don't understand. And this is the something else. That he actually explains to them what's happening is that through this, verse 20, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, he will not hide himself anymore. That all of the difficulties that you have and I like those illustrations, the bread of affliction and the water of diversity. And honestly, some of us have a serious feast set before us in those, haven't we? 
The difficulties and afflictions that we've had have been overwhelming for some of us. It seems like they're just oppressive. They're just closing in. It's too much. And interestingly, what does the Lord say He's going to do? Is that He uses those difficulties for His people so that we may know Him. So that we may see Him. So that we may believe Him so that we may understand him. I mean, there's an element of if he's promised to protect us, we, we don't know what we're being protected from the vast majority of the time. And then when you really see something scary or you do get something that really hurts, you understand in a new and fresh way why that is so incredibly important. Look at what else happens in verse uh, 21. Your ears will hear a person behind you saying, this is the way to walk in it when you try to turn to the left or to the right. Again, he's protecting. He's taking care of so that when you're trying to be a bozo and go the wrong direction, he's standing there behind you going, don't do that. Don't do that. That's bad. Don't go that way. Go that way. Don't go that way. He's informing your conscience. His spirit is working. He's using his word to tell you about who he is and how you should live. And in in fact, even verse 22, this is my favorite, that the corrupting idols that we have are just thrown away like, be gone, go away. I'm going to just throw them in the trash. That the Lord uses our difficulty to bring about knowledge of him and love for him and faith in him. Verse 23 through the end of this section through 26, it's all blessing upon blessing upon blessing because God uses our difficulty for our good. And you think, well, that, I mean, that seems a bit maybe perhaps confusing. I mean, it is until you think about the cross. The greatest difficulty in human history The Lord Jesus endured the cross. He went and suffered an unjust death, died a death he did not deserve, receiving punishment both physically on the cross and spiritually from God himself so that I would benefit and that you might benefit. Forgiveness in Jesus. Lastly, and this will be very brief, how is this all possible? (laughs) How is it possible that uh, this arrangement can happen, that the Lord loves to protect his people? How is it possible uh, that he's going to show his justice, he's going to destroy sin? How is it possible that the Lord will use even our difficulties for our good in ways that maybe we don't understand to teach us who he is and how we are? Well, 27 through 33 have one primary theme. This is where he deals with the Assyrians. The Assyrians at this point are the portrait of power, They are, at this point in history, roughly the most powerful nation on the planet. Again, not known for uh, being friendly. They're known for being nasty, nasty, miserable humans. Uh, What they did to their conquered enemies was just not able to really be talked about in the pulpit most of the time. It's really dreadful. And the interesting thing in verses 27 through 33 is that (laughs) they're like a breath of wind before the Lord. The most powerful thing known on planet Earth is nothing before him. It's, it, it, it's just pff, easily pushed astride, blown away, and not even important at all because God himself is mighty 
and strong and powerful. In 27 through 33, you get to see that the Lord himself will rise up to do his labors, to do his work, to show his mighty power. And this is, I would just kind of maybe lovingly and respectfully and humbly kind of try to step on your toes just a little bit. That our God is mighty is one of those truths that we teach our children. And when our children have problems, we teach them, you need to trust the Lord because your God is big and strong and mighty. And then as an adult, it's like we somehow forget that he's bigger than our problems too. It's like sometimes we just kind of implicitly think that our God is only child-sized problems big and not adult size. Not, not my pain size or my problem size or my hurt or my heartache size. Friends, the Lord is mightier. He's mightier than your sin. He's mightier than your sorrow. He's mightier than your stress and anxiety. He's mightier than your worry and your heartache. The Lord is greater than anyone and anything. Our task as the people of God is to just try to stay as close to him as possible. Hide beneath kind of the folds of his robes is one of the illustrations given in the scriptures because that is where safety is found. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is safe to be at your feet. Would you please forgive us for running? And Lord, we do pray that you would teach us in Jesus Christ that that is where salvation is found. We praise you for him, for Christ's sake, amen.